from the campus of Stanford University. This is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer at the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Dr. Wellbeing Pope. <laughs> That's my new last name for this show? Wellbeing. Wellbeing. Yes. Today we're talking about uh, mental health of our children. We are talking about mental health, Dan, and I have a question for you because you and I were talking a little bit about something called a school counselor. Uh, and you gave me a bit of a puzzled look. So I, 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 tell me what you think a school counselor does. Have you heard of this role before? Yes. You have? Yes. Okay. The School of Education used to have a counseling program. Yes, we did. A very good one. Yeah. And so I think I know what a school guidance counselor does. Okay. What you do you, tell me about that. They give you guidance. <laughs> Just on everything there yeah, is. Yeah, should I buy amalgamated stock? Yes, I, I do think you should, son. Uh, <laughs> buy low, sell high. <laughs> uh, so I don't, you know, do, I don't know, like, does a school counselor do an IEP? Like a student may come in and need special services. Is the school counselor the one who makes that decision? Or is, or is that the school nurse? So an IEP is an individualized education plan. And right. that is often what's used for kids when you have some kind of learning difference and you need, let's say, extra time or you need some reminders with their right. work. So that's definitely part of the role of but the it, school is, counselor. Is that school counselor the same as the guidance counselor? Like or is this person sort of everything rolled up into one? It's a good question. So you, some schools across the nation have a school nurse – and the school nurse is kind of what you would think, sort of physical health um, issues. Some have um, school psychiatrists associated with either the school or the district. Mm. Um, but most schools, if you don't have a nurse or a psychiatrist, that, that, you know, those are kind of rare. Mm. But most schools have school counselors. And the school counselor job, because of that, is kind of everything rolled up in one. If you're, if you're at a school where there's no school nurse, you are – kind of the de facto school nurse. You are dealing with um, everything like eating disorders and mental health issues. Parents. Parents and social drama and cliques. But you're also dealing with, like you said, um, educational testing sometimes and individual education plans for kids and figuring out who has ADD and ADHD. and Helping kids decide on which college to go to. And then, yes, think of that. On top of all that, right, guidance, you're, you're sort of the person who knows everything. You are the person who helps them with their schedule. You often are the person who signs off on their schedule in high school, and you are the one who helps them as they apply to college. And you're often the one who actually does the writing um, of the letters that go to colleges on the kids' behalf. So can you f- wow. so just, yeah, imagine that job. Wow. Now, prepare to be shocked. Imagine there's one of you and you're in charge of anywhere from 500 to 725 kids. Can, can I like just have a podcast or something? <laughs> like, like a Dear Abby column, <laughs> yeah, bring just, me all your issues and I can solve them for can you. Can you imagine having that? I mean, this is, this is the reality, particularly in states like California, where the ratio is just crazy. And that person who has all those responsibilities is in charge of all of those kids. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, I don't know how you organize your day. It's, yeah, I mean, where do you even start? Yeah. Right. It's, it's three lot, to four is guidance counseling. 
right? And a lot of times it's putting out fires. A lot of times you're seeing a kid for maybe 10 minutes each semester. Do you think you would have been good at this? (laughs) No, I think I would have been terrible at this. Really? Well, I'll tell you what. It it gets to me that we can't give every kid the attention they deserve. I mean, if you ask any school counselor, they don't want that ratio, right? That's not – and at independent schools, those ratios are much different, obviously, Mm -hmm. right? So – no, I think it's a really, really hard job, and I think they're often our unsung heroes. So what if I don't like my school counselor? Like, you know, if well, I yeah. – yeah. Most of the time, they don't even know their school counselor. And so yeah. if you think about the show that we're going to do today where we talk about mental health and suicide ideation and <clears throat> suicide prevention, you have to feel like there's someone you can go to who knows you. Mm-hmm. And this is where our guest comes in. Very good. Yeah. Very good. We are Very good really, segue. Thank you. Yep. We are really excited to introduce Dr. Shashank Joshi. He is an associate professor at Stanford School of Medicine. He is also a courtesy associate professor here in the School of Education. He specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry. Following the suicides of several teens in the Bay Area between 2009 and 2011, Dr. Joshi and his colleagues began working with local educators and primary care physicians and mental health professionals and community leaders in a series of teen mental health and suicide prevention initiatives that have done just amazing things here in the Bay Area. And they developed resources for students who suffer from depression and programs to reduce the stigma associated with mental health problems. So this is going to be a good show. Welcome. That's like the medical equivalent of a school counselor. It's very (laughs) impressive. Welcome. Welcome, Dr. Joshi. Thank you. Delighted to be here with both of you. So let, let, let me start. So every adult generation thinks the kids coming behind them like they're wrong, like the music they listen to. That's just not – that's not good music, right? Or the fashion. Uh, do kids today think differently than we did? They should – so when it comes to mental health, I have heard that people say the mental health of this, this new generation is not as good. Is, is there any truth to this at all? Well, I think that depends on how you define mental health. Yeah. Um, part of what our job was in 2009, 10, 11 – was to meet with educators, to sit with students and parents and try to understand um, what some of the challenges they were dealing with were with regard to mental health. Because early on throughout Northern California, we found a number of opportunities to uh, work with school districts and really get them to embrace this idea from a district policy perspective that mental health is part of overall health. And if a school district's job is to get kids healthy enough to learn, that's why we have the school nurse, uh, that's why we have other trusted adults in the community, then kids have to be mentally healthy enough to access the curriculum. So by those measures, um, the numbers are not going in the right direction nationally or in California. Mm -hmm. Um, We need to look at big surveys, demographic surveys like the CDC, uh, Youth Risk Behavior Survey, um, Search Institute's Developmental Assets Survey, the California Healthy Kids Survey, things like that to get a sense. And we've seen since 2009 uh, things like depression and anxiety going up, not only in prevalence, you know, the Um, appearance of a condition at any point in time, but also looking at one-year incidents. And these are generally surveys that are self-report, but if you 
track them every couple of years, you can see that some of the indices are really going in the wrong direction. For example, the prevalence of depression in youth has been going up steadily. Mm. Um, the prevalence of anxiety has been going up steadily. And these, again, these are self-report. But when you talk with other professionals who work with young people like pediatricians, they're actually doing a better job of screening now. So now they are also contributing to the sense of we need to be doing more of this in primary care. We need to be having more conversations about this. Mental health and suicide prevention, for example, is a big priority for the Academy of Pediatrics. And so um, I think some of it has to do with uh, some factors in our society and other things regarding the pre prevalence rates have to do with who's being asked. And when it's professionals, I think as a group, we're doing a better job in picking it up, mm -hmm. trying to screen for it, uh, particularly in the school settings where counselors, as you were just talking about, may not have the time to screen for depression, but they are the ones and the teachers and other adults may be, can be trained how to be attuned to what is normal, what is not, and how do I know when to worry when I need to refer. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Dr. Shashank Joshi about when to worry as a parent. He's a specialist in child and adolescent psychiatry. So, Shashank, let's answer that question. When, when, how do you know when it's wait, sort wait, of normal? Wait, I, I want to see if I got the answer to this question right. The uh -huh. answer is, uh, by the record, it's going up, but that maybe it's going up because we're paying more attention to it and therefore we're capturing what was already existing at a higher rate. Is that, I think that's is that, part. I think that's part of the reason. Mm -hmm. I think we are doing better as a medical community, a mental health community, and a school community at being able to identify. But for the most part, let's take this and distinguish it against something like autism. And an autism is not typically done by self-report. You know that may be done by um, sampling parents in large population bases. Um, whereas depression and anxiety, that's self-report, and mm -hmm. so. Um, the self-report really has to do with awareness among young people that, oh, this is actually a thing that is affecting me. Mm -hmm. And in my school, if I talk about this on an anonymous survey, I trust that no one's going to find me. Um, but I also trust that if I do have a problem, I can go talk to someone about it. So I'd say that part of the increase has to do with better awareness, more conversations, more school policies about mental health suicide prevention, wellness, and some of it has to do with the people who are in charge of the care of our young people, like pediatricians, like guidance counselors, like teachers who are more attuned now with a lot of the science-based programs and evidence-based uh, prevention, universal prevention initiatives. So I think it's both. And mm -hmm. I think so whenever there's a survey, it's important to ask Who's getting the survey and how are the data being collected? Is it self-report or is it a sampling of school district administrators or school nurses or pediatricians and right. what they're seeing in their practice? I see. Or hospitalization rates. I know some Hospi people use yeah. that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the number of psych holds put on kids in a semester or what? a year. What would you say? A psych hold. A psych hold. Do you want to explain that, Dr. Doshi? So uh, a psychiatric hold or, or a psych hold or a 5150 here in California has to do with um, the placement of an involuntary status on a young person or an adult who is felt to be a danger to themselves or others or mm -hmm. gravely disabled to mm -hmm. be able to care for themselves. And in the context of mental health, when we talk about 
um, hospitalization or a psych hold. We're talking about those children and youth, and generally we're talking about teens. CDC uses the 12 to 17 range. When they're talking about youth and young people, they're usually talking about 15 to 24. So for the moment, if we talk about 12 to 17 and focus on the school-age teen population, it has to do with the idea that uh, you know kids can be in severe distress, and there are even those on school campuses who are trained to identify those who may be in immediate danger of self-harm. Mm-hmm. And so that usually results in a series of interventions, and it may result in someone saying, we need you to go to the emergency room. And um, so some of the big surveys that have been done, for example, in LA Unified, in the largest school district in the country, um, in 2010, there were uh, 255 documented incidences district-wide, which seems incredibly low. But um, maybe you'd think, well, geez, that many who were suicidal? But remember how big that district is, right? right? right. So that was 2010. In 2015, it went up to 5,000 incidents. Now, wow. Now, now there wow. is an example, Dan, of where it's not only an astronomical increase, but a lot of it probably has to do with the very intentional training of staff to find these kids and to be able to get them assessed quickly and then to be able to have them, uh, you know, triaged. Some of them may have made statements or wrote something in an essay that was worrisome. It came to the attention of a trusted adult. It was then referred to someone who could do an assessment. So that's an example of where staff are getting trained to look for these things. Um, I'll also say that the numbers of students reporting hopelessness and sadness for a two-week period or more has gone up steadily. Mm. Now we're at, in LA Unified, in a survey done last year, 30% of their student population reporting that in Mm. the prior year. Um, Now, that doesn't mean they all have depression, but that means they've had prolonged periods of time where they probably were not at their best in terms of engaging the school curriculum. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Dr. Shashank Joshi, an associate professor at the Stanford School of Medicine, about mental health and, in particular, depression, anxiety, suicide ideation. So I am going to go back and ask the question. Sorry, sorry to have no, interrupted. No, it was a good interruption, and I think we should go back. I'm a parent. I'm listening. How do I know when this is sort of normal, adolescent, up and down? Oh, my life is you know a nightmare. Oh, I love my life. And when do I really need to worry and talk to a clinician? Well, a couple of things that come to mind, and then um, I know, Denise, you and I were on a couple of panels talking about this, so um, I would invite your um, <laughs> insight as the Recent school year has just come to an end. Am I left out? Uh, are you again? feeling left out, yeah. Dan? We'll include you in some way. Okay. <laughs> I was asked the question of the audience when we we're with parents. You know, how many of you are raising teenagers now, or have raised teenagers, yeah. and half raise their hand, and then we say, "How many of you once were teenagers?" <laughs> and the idea that when we were teens, just as you said before, Dan, you know, there there were always were issues that time too, right? About uh, the adults don't approve of what we do, how we dress, what music we listen to. I think some of that has continued to be the same. I think the stuff that has evolved has to do with the ever-present nature of um, social media, 24-7 news cycle, the online presence. It's constantly there. Um, you know, National Sleep Foundation has done a series of surveys since 2010 looking at the number of youth who are awakened within an hour after going to bed by some media thing, 
whether it's a text message, an oh, email, an some activation. And it's, you know, it's usually hovers between 15 and 25 percent. So the idea of turning your phones in, you know, into a central basket or box, including with the adults at some point, yes. has a lot of value. And I know that Challenge Success has a lot of ideas about what you can do around, you know, how you think about the the social media idea. But the the what's normal, what's not, I think, has to do with this idea that – we do have media. It's here to stay. We have to embrace it. We have to understand it so we can you know, use it in healthy ways. And the same is true with moods. Moods happen. Teenage <laughs> brains are changing. Um, girls' brains in particular, which um, in terms of the social-emotional development, which tends to start earlier, also makes them more at risk for things like relational bullying, um, microaggressions, or macroaggressions, cyberbullying that's very intentional, feeling excluded, um, girls f- feeling outcasted and targeted as young as fifth grade. It's one of the reasons why there's a lot of folks like at Common Sense Media and other places <clears throat> that's looking at the science of, of teenage brain development and using that to make recommendations about, you know, when should be the first time a young person gets a cell phone or access to a social media account. And so... Um, what you basically are looking for with with these kinds of questions about normal versus not normal, and normal is in quotes, right, is first of all to see how is this young person doing overall and what has changed in their life. In other words, are they spending so much time with a group of friends that are new to the point where they are no longer doing things that they liked before? Now, maybe that's a new group of friends and a new group of likes. But on the other hand, it may be that they're so into that one thing or that one social media site that they are now excluding other activities. So you worry about them dropping off their trajectory of the things that they were progressing in. So with regard to mood, yes, every day, up and down, you know, every week, we might see that days at a time, I start to pay attention. If it's a week or more, and their mood has really changed, then I want to be having a conversation and trying to understand what's been going on, what's happening. I really want to pay attention things to things that I might be able to control as a parent, like are they sleeping normally? Are they eating normally? Are they doing some of the regulatory things they're supposed to? And then if you're beyond a week and you get to two weeks, then we start to think about, okay, if it's low mood and loss of interest, we might be dealing with a depressive episode because, again, normally we would think about couple of days here and there. Mostly for teens, it's it's a day in their back or a few hours. But I think for parents, it's important to pay attention to changes in the normal pattern of up and down. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Dr. Shashank Joshi and more tips and resources for parents and teachers and kids around mental health next here on Sirius XM Insight 121. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Dr. Shashank Joshi, an associate professor at Stanford School of Medicine who specializes in child and adolescent psychiatry, talking about uh, what parents should look for and some resources. So, uh, Denise, before before we end, I want to make sure that Shashank provides pointers to places for more information. This is a very complicated space. And I know that there's uh, tools and programs that can help. But before we get there, we've been 
basically been talking about reactive things that you would do. Are there proactive things I can do to ensure mental health and, and not have to suddenly you know, figure out what to do in a crisis? Absolutely. So for educators, there are so many resources now available on the web, and I'll highlight a couple of them. Um, so I mentioned LA Unified before. A lot of this work in prevention, suicide prevention, uh, working with kids who have been through trauma and loss, for example, because that increases your rate for thinking about suicide. They started to do a lot of work with the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, or NCTSN. NCTSN has a wonderful set of resources on their website, nctsn.org, specifically for educators. For example, there are lots of tools there for working with preschoolers, elementary, middle, high school, and even transition age youth, as well as for teachers who work with these kids so that, let's say, you hear about a tragedy in another community. It's on the news. It's not happened to your community yet, but you want to have a conversation. Well, there are tip sheets that you can use. There are lesson plans you can use. There are lots of ideas that NCTSN uses in terms of the neuroscience of development. What you would teach in an elementary school classroom would be different than can, what you would teach in a high you, school classroom. Can you pull up an example of a tip? Yeah, sure. So for kids who are younger, one of the things to talk about is sometimes the educators will use a storybook where they can use an animal character who's going through some stress. And actually, one of my fellows wrote a book on this, and it's an, it's an area of interest because younger kids may not be able to describe their inner feeling states. They may, in fact, have bodily sensations like headaches and stomach aches. They may be describing things like, you know, my, my stomach feels jittery or have butterflies. And so if educators are aware that somatic or bodily sensations may be the first signs that a, young, a younger child is nervous, they may be more likely than to meet with them and try to understand what's going on. In contrast, the older kids might not talk about it, but they might write about it. So if there is a narrative assignment or a journaling assignment, or if there are breakout groups where you have, for example, evidence-based curricula that have been developed where you watch a documentary together and then you do breakout groups to get the reaction and then you give them a form at the end of class for referring a friend or referring themselves. Um, we find that that's a really nice way to be able to get them not in a way that is out front but in a more subtle way because they usually can describe their inner states. And so one has to just know that for different ages there are different needs teachers who are engaging with different groups of youth will need different kinds of tools. That's why I like that one website. There's another that's the um, Center for Youth Mental Health and Well-Being, which is out of Stanford. It's out of the Department of Psychiatry. And um, they have a number of resources there for, especially for teens and young adults, for um, learning more about mental health, for school districts to learn about programs that work that they can put into their curricula. We've been involved with one called Sources of Strength. Sources of Strength is a national evidence-based program. It's been a best practice since uh, the late 2000s. Peter Wyman and his group from University of Rochester has done a lot of work with this. And it, it started with work on Native American reservations with natural helpers, not with clinicians, but with youth leaders and people who work with youth around, you know, what are the beliefs and the spiritual practices that keep us healthy in the face of a lot of tragedy? And from that, they develop eight components of how to live a healthy life 
physically, mentally, spiritually, and they came up with this program which focuses on identifying peer leaders on high school campuses to propagate messages of hope, help, and strength. And it's really ideal to bring this program in before you are dealing with a suicide cluster. And one of the opportunities for us is to talk again about how mental health is really important for overall health. And if you're in school, you've got to be healthy enough to learn. And how we need to share the data that talking about suicide does not increase the risk. And there's been plenty of work on this that's been published showing that actually when you discuss the idea about suicide and you just discuss it responsibly and always talk about resources, you can actually get kids to talk about it in a more open way, not go underground, not feel stigmatized, and get them help upstream instead of at a desperation downstream point. So we always, when we go to school boards, we got to have that literature ready and we have to be able to translate in a way in the three-minute time period we have in the, at the school board to be able to have these kind of prevention programs going to talk about mental health way before it gets to desperation. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're talking with Dr. Shashank Joshi about mental health, being proactive, lots of websites that you can go to with really good resources for your schools. So you mentioned that talking about suicide doesn't beget suicide. And I think that's a really important point. I think a lot of teachers are just afraid. I am not trained in this. I am not a psychiatrist. You're saying some of these websites have resources for teachers yes. as well? Yes. And I think what you want to do is normalize the idea of mental health. Um, I want to highlight another wonderful project in our community um, that's been highlighted and mentioned in the New York Times before. Um, Gunn High School has a school newspaper called The Oracle. And in The Oracle, there is a column called Changing the Narrative. Changing the Narrative features school staff, principals over the last few years, school leaders, students talking about struggles they may have had and how they got better, what they did about it. They have these campaigns called I Am Stronger. I Am Stronger because, and they'll list an example, and it's a way of just saying, look, stress happens. It's part of normal everyday life. It can make us stronger if we can get over it. Let's deal with it early before it gets to be a big problem. And so Changing the Narrative has a lot of nice examples of people sharing their own story. Similar to Sources of Strength, the most robust outcomes are in schools where peer leaders share their personal narrative and talk about how they struggled and then how they dealt with it and do how you, they're stronger do you, now. Do you talk about it as I'm having a period of distress. Oh, that's okay. That's sort of like having a cold and you'll get over it. I think first it starts with listening mm -hmm. and getting the person to talk more about it. I think broadly I like – for some communities in particular, culturally, there is a destigmatization message that can go across with, like I'm having a cold. Or President Obama actually used this term in a town hall where he talked about a brain injury or a mind injury for a veteran that was struggling with PTSD. That you know you could have your arm seriously damaged from an RPG. You could also have your mind damaged by the experience. And so we as a country have to do better to take care of our veterans, not only their bodies but also their minds. And in the same way, I think for schools, you've got to talk about this as something that is in the mind and the, we need healthy minds in order to be able to learn. Unlike the cold, however, which will go away by itself in seven to ten days, if someone is dealing with severe distress, not everyday stress, but severe distress where they're losing interest in things they want to do, their mood's sad for two weeks or more, they've got weight changes and sleep changes and some of the other things we talk about in depression, then we want to encourage 
that conversation to occur earlier and for teachers to not have all the answers. We're not trying to turn them into therapists, but teachers are probably the first stop for a lot of these youth who trust them as their first trusted adult. So part of the work that groups like Cognito out of New York are doing like virtual role play software, which now Sequoia Union, Palo Alto, several other districts in in California have embraced this. It's also an evidence-based practice to teach teachers, how would you interact with a student in this particular situation? And then the program guides you down a pathway around a number of choices. Thank you so much, Dr. Joshi, for giving us all of those resources, helping us to think about how to break down the stigma around mental health, and for giving all that you do to help kids in the Bay Area and actually all over the nation. And thank you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, you can listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app on iTunes and on SoundCloud. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.